So, 1 Timothy, uh, the first of the pastoral epistles, um, written to Timothy or Timotheus. And um, what I want to do before we get into the Word of God is kind of do uh, a full, um, in-depth introduction to this book and what it's all about, why it was written, and all of that good stuff. So the first thing let's go over is the who. Who wrote it? Who was the writer of 1 Timothy? Well, um, it says right there in the first verse of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's not a whole lot of um, argument within scholarship about who wrote the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy. It's pretty obvious who wrote them um, just by how it was written, um, the style. Also, who, who he was writing to, the relationship that he had with Timothy was very secure, and um, history tells us that this is something that uh, is very uh, easy to identify as Pauline authorship. So who was Paul? And I kind of want to go over this because it's been a while since I've heard this uh, myself, but who was Paul? Paul was introduced to us as Saul of Tarsus, right? We see that in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when Saul of Tarsus was standing by and a group of men decided to stone Stephen. And in doing so, they took off their jackets and they laid them before a young man named Saul. Um, so he was a, a witness to the killing. And actually, uh, it's said in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, that he... Um, approved of the killing himself. So Saul, what does that name mean? It means a desired one. It's it's someone put on a pedestal, someone who's seen as a, a, a higher up, so to say. Um, history tells us that he was one of the most well-studied um, of the Pharisees, so to say, um, of his age. He was high academic, looked up to in his age group. Um, we see from there in Acts chapter 7, it moves on to him actually taking up arms and continuing in the persecution in Acts chapter 8 verse 3, where it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. So Saul witnessed this stoning happen of um, the first martyr of the church, and he continued this havoc throughout the church. And it actually says that he, he caused the havoc by entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. It's thought that he actually was separating families and killing people for the name of Jesus Christ. That's who the writer of this epistle is. He's a, a murderous, disgusting man, right? We're going to see that by grace he's redeemed and he's been um, placed in front of the church as a picture of grace. But that is who he is in his own power his own strength and his own will. And then in Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there with me, Acts chapter 9 verse 1, we see this thing happen. Um, Acts chapter 9 verse 1, starting again in verse 1. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. So he still has on his mouth threats and murder. That's his desire for the church and especially the leadership of the church, right? So he goes to the high priest, verse 2, and asked letters from him to uh, the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, speaking of Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The idea is Paul's desire was to please God, but this was obviously not pleasing to God. Verse 6, So he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. So, situation. Paul, young man, gets this fire to go and kill Christians because of what he had witnessed, because of his zeal for God, not understanding the things of God, his desire to please God. He was killing the people of God. It's a horrible, horrible situation. He's on, his, on the road to Damascus to go and continue his murderous rant against the church, and Jesus appears to him and says, Hey, you're persecuting me. You're going against God. And, and what do we see from this circumstance? What is the result? What is the end result? We do see that Ananias comes and removes the blindness by the word of God, right? Um, God tells him to go and, and pray for him, and the, the scales would be removed. But if we go to, down to verse 20, of Acts chapter 9, verse 20 of Acts chapter 9, it says, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. So, what has happened is, Saul of Tarsus, this young man who was well studied, understood scripture, went, killed Christians in his misunderstanding. Okay, we're going to see, he's going to explain that a little bit later in one of his epistles. But he's gone through, killed Christians, he's destroying, he's trying to destroy the church. Jesus appears to him, and he has this moment where he recognizes, oh, I'm doing wrong. I now need to worship Jesus Christ because he is the God that I have zeal for. And the first thing that we see happen to him once the scales are fully removed from his eyes is he's preaching the word of God. 
He's preaching Jesus, the Christ, to those who he knows are trying to persecute the church. He's fearless. He's caught fire for the things of God. He's serious about the work of God. His heart is on fire for Jesus Christ. He's no longer trying to kill the church. He's trying to expand the church. So the writer, Paul, has now caught fire for this love, this relentless love of God. And then we move into Timothy. Who was it written to? Timothy. We're going to tie this all together at the end. So Timothy, you could turn back to 1 Timothy. Well, we're going to be in Acts a little bit here, but I'll just read it to you if you'd like. So who is Timothy? Again, his name is Timotheus. The word means to honor God. Okay, And the first time we see Timothy is in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, where it says, Then he came to Derb, speaking of Paul and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So this was a very young man. Uh, it's believed that in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, he's somewhere between 17 and 21. Um, this is obviously a disciple of Jesus Christ. It says right there that he met a disciple, a believer. And uh, this, this is a young man that catches that fire that Paul's giving off. The first thing that we see about Tim Timothy, Timotheus, is that he's an outcast, that he's different. And the reason for that is seen in Acts chapter 1. If you read uh, towards the end, it says, He is the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So you had a Jewish mother who was a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ, and a Greek father who was not at all a believer. This is a huge issue in the society that they lived. Because a Greek marrying a Jew from the, Ge the Greek's eyes is taboo. You don't do that. You're marrying down. And from, the Greek, and from the Jew's eyes, you're marrying a dog. You're marrying outside of our faith. What are you doing? On top of that, she's a Christian. So she's being outcast by the Jews. So you have this young man that's completely outcast from all different groups that he's involved in in society. We're going to also see... In Acts chapter 16, verse 3, that Paul wanted to have him go with him, so he circumcised him. That means that Timotheus, even though his mother was a Jew, was not circumcised. Which means he, uh, uh, to some extent, completely rejected the ceremonies of the Jews at 18 to 21. So you're talking about a young man that has been pretty much dismissed by all uh, facets of society. So that's who we're dealing with as far as Timothy goes. The next thing we see is that he is Paul's traveling companion. He's one of them. One of many, but he's one of them. We see that in all kinds of different places, and we're not going to read all of these, but Acts chapter 16, verse 1, Acts chapter 17, verse 14 through 15, Acts 18, 5, Acts 19, 22, Acts 20, verse 4, and then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote the book, the, the epistles with Paul, and also 2 Thessalonians 1, 1. The third thing we see about Timothy 
is that he was Paul's true son in the faith. And this is important. This is so important because it shows the relationship that these two had with one another, right? Again, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, it says to Timothy, a true son in the faith. And there's only one other person in Scripture that, that Paul calls a son in the faith, and that's Titus. And it would seem as though these are the two that truly grasped on to Paul almost as a father figure. And I think of my father when, when this is said. I think of my dad, right? And this is the man that, that I clung to my whole life, the man that fed me, the man that, that clothed me, the, the man that provided my, my uh, security. He was the man that showed me everything from how to replace a toilet all the way to how to cook a chicken. I mean, he, he showed me everything in life. And Paul's able to say, Timothy, you're my true son in the faith. You have clung on to the vision God has given me, and you've followed me with all that you have. Which begs the question in our lives, when we hear the things that Paul says, does it truly cause us to catch fire? Does it stir in our hearts the things that he says that, that we should desire, the things that we should be doing, the things that God says through his very word? Does it cause us to have a desire to go, do as he has called us to, to make disciples, to baptize to teach, to take care of orphans and widows, all of these different commands that he's called us to. Do we have a fire? Have we caught fire? And if we haven't, then we need to turn back to God because the reality is something's wrong inside. Something's wrong inside of our hearts. You know, it's, it's funny as we look at the American church, things have gone wildly out of control in comparison to what Scripture has called us to be. We need to be lovers of truth. We need to be those who are desiring the things of God. The fourth thing that we see about Timothy, we could see it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 23. And if you want, you could turn there. Philippians chapter 2, 19 through 23. We see that he was the only one like-minded with Paul. You see, even though there was Titus, who was called a true son in the faith, even though there was Luke, who seems to be with Paul all the way through his uh, missions from the point that Paul met Luke, it seems as though Timothy was the only one that fully grasped what God was doing. And we see that again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus's. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. Paul's saying that there is one 
person that I could send to you that will care for you the way that I care for you. There's one person that I could trust because of his testimony. Now, the question is for us, is do we have that testimony? Like, if someone were to come to Will today and say, Will, I need someone to come and fill in in my pulpit. Do we have the kind of testimony that would allow us to do that, men here? Women, do, do we have the type of testimony where we could go and serve in, in a capacity that the Lord has called us to serve? Maybe children's ministry or something of that sort. Even going and talking to women on a large scale. Do we have the type of testimony that, that would allow Will to say, there's no one like-minded but fill in your name? The fifth thing we see about Timothy was he was a person Paul sent out to resolve early church problems. And when we think of Timothy, at least when I think of Timothy, I think of the pastor in Ephesus, one of the pastors in Ephesus. But the reality of it is it would seem as though Timothy would go to different churches to help establish leadership. Because as we look through Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, it says, uh, Paul talking, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you. So he sent Timothy to the Philippian church, to the Corinthian church. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God. So you have him sent to the Philippian church, the Corinthian church, the Thessalonian church, the Ephesian, the, the Ephesian church, right? He's in the, the pastor uh, in the church of Ephesus at the time of this writing. Timothy was a trustworthy young man. And that, again, begs the question, are we trustworthy with the ministry that the Lord has called us to? Whatever that ministry may look like, whatever that ministry may be, are we trustworthy? When we say we're going to do whatever it is that we're called to, do those around us know, no, I, I'm okay because it's going to happen. This person is going to take care of whatever they've talked about. The next question is what? And the what question is, what is the main theme of 1 Timothy? And as I look at 1 Timothy, as I read it as a whole, I see that there are really two themes. And, and what they are is Timothy's commission to the church in Ephesus and also church government as a whole. How we're supposed to establish the church in the church government and what is Timothy's call to go and do as far as the church in Ephesus is concerned. And there are two central verses to this, and that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Verse 14. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, which says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself 
in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So this is the uh, establishment of how you, the leadership, is supposed to act inside of the church. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, if you want to turn there. And it says, verse 6 again, it says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished in words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. So Timothy, this is what I want you to go do. I want you to go nourish these people in good doctrine, in the word of God. And I want you to go establish church government and how it's supposed to be established. The next question is, where was it written? And I think that this one is, uh, you know, different people's ideas. No one really knows exactly where this epistle was written. Uh, But most scholars believe it was written from Macedonia. Um, But again, that's speculation. There's no way to know exactly where this was written from. And where was Timothy at the time of this writing? So we just talked a little bit about it. He's in Ephesus, right? And um, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, it says, And I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So again, Paul's saying that I urged you to stay there when I was in Macedonia. Again, that doesn't mean he's still in Macedonia, but it does mean that he's still that, that Timothy is still in Ephesus. What was Ephesus all about? What was this city like? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 19, verse 21. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 19, yeah, verse 21. And uh, this is where we're going to stay for a little while um, because we want to talk about a specific happening that happened to Paul in Ephesus. So Acts chapter 19, verse 21 It says, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So he stayed right where he was in Ephesus. Verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So, situation, Paul's in the city and he's creating, or he's making Christians out of people who believe in Diana. Diana is the goddess of, of sensuality or sexuality. Um, she was uh, worshipped through prostitution. There was a huge temple. There still is in Ephesus today the ruins of the temple uh, to Diana um, where thousands of prostitutes lived and would come out and service sailors and different uh, travelers that came through Ephesus. 
Um, so this is kind of the, the area that this takes place, and that's why we're going to see a few of the, the things said in, Tim in 1 Timothy are very important. So uh, a commotion arose about the way, verse 25. It says, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, men, you knew that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Verse 27. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of failing, or sorry, falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So they're saying, look, this guy's going to kill off our religion and our trade. There's big issue here. Guys, we're going to lose our money and our goddess, which is really, they're saying we're going to lose our right to this sexual deviancy and our finances, our money, okay? Which is actually what we hear very often from the world when we start talking about Jesus, right? We go into society and we say, hey, reject all this stuff from the world and come to Jesus. You're going to find joy. You're going to find happiness. You're going to find comfort and peace. And, there's, and most of them say, yeah, but I don't want to get rid of my sexual deviancy and my money. Those are usually the two things that they're, they're crying loudest for, right? And we see that in Acts chapter 15 when, um, when Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas go to the apostles and talk to them about, well, what does it take for Gentiles to get saved? And what they give for regulations and rules for the Gentile church is pretty much no sexual immorality and no idolatry. And these are the two things that they're crying about, right? So verse 28 of Acts chapter 19, it says, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions, verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go into uh, the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and another, uh, and some other for another thing. For the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Zeus, speaking of an asteroid that came down that had what seemed to be breasts all over it. Verse 36, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, 
you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men who were, uh, who here, these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-consuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Verse 39. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dis he dismissed the assembly. So this whole situation comes across in Ephesus where Paul's preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. The city goes in an uproar because people are losing money. People are uh, afraid that their goddess is going to lose the prestige that she has. So they, they have this huge uproar, right? And this is the city in which Timothy is being called to go and, and be an example to the believers there. What a difficult situation. What a horrible, horrible calling. At least it would seem. You see, Timothy had the same heart that Paul did. And when Paul saw something that was hard, something that was impossible, but it was for the name of Jesus, he was right on. He was willing to do it. He was all in. We see that when Paul's stoned to death, and after being revived through prayer, runs right back into the city. This is the fire that Timothy has caught from Paul. This is the, the desire for the things of Jesus Christ that Timothy has caught from Paul. When was this written? Um, again, most scholars believe it was written sometime between AD 64 and 67, after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. And the last thing is, why? Why was this written? I believe it was written to encourage a young pastor. Because the young pastor, the, the young man that was being sent out, seems to be discouraged as I read through the epistles to him. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, it says, uh, uh, Paul saying to Timothy again, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. And, and I could just hear the tenderness in his voice as he writes this. My son according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy, listen, buddy. God's got your back because it's already been prophesied that you're called to do this, that you're called to take care of this. Just go out and do what you've been called to. What tenderness we see from a spiritual father. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 14 and 15, he says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. Timothy, you know, I'm, I'm coming, buddy. Don't worry. It's like a dad and his son. I'm coming to you shortly. Verse 15, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Listen, I'm with you, bud. But God's with you. You know, it's, it's almost like the, these are the same exact words I say to my children. 
my kids every night, they're afraid to go to sleep in their beds, which are like, you know, five steps away from my bed, a couple of them. And I, and I say to them, they say to me, daddy, I'm scared. And I say, what are you afraid of? And they say, the monsters. And I say, what monsters? You don't even know what a monster is. You've never seen them. And they go, you're right. <laughs> and then I say, go get in bed. It's okay. I'm here. I'm right on the other side of the wall from you. But even more than that, Jesus is with you. And you have no fear. You're okay. This is the tenderness I see in the letter from Paul to his spiritual son. Now on to scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Excuse me. The first thing I want to look at is Paul, an apostle. What is an apostle? And very often I've seen this word kind of misconstrued to be whatever people want it to be. And I think we need to get our definitions from Scripture. But what I've seen in different groups around us in this area, and also when I was in California, is different groups trying to claim this uh, superior position of apostleship. And we have to be very careful with that because we need to know what that means before we call ourselves that, all right? Um, the word apostle, the, the definition, is one who's sent out. That's all it is. It, it's someone who's sent out with a purpose, to represent uh, uh, someone, okay? And um, a delegate or a messenger, one sent forth with orders. That's all an apostle is. In Romans chapter 1, Verse 5 through 6 it tells us that through him we have received grace and apostleship for, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name's sake. That's Paul speaking. Okay, But then it continues in verse 6 by saying, Among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. So wait a second. We're all called to be apostles? Yes, we are. We are all called to apostleship for the obedience of the faith, to be sent out ones to this world, to be a light in the darkness, to be a city set upon a hill, to be those who usher people into the kingdom of God. So in a general sense, we're all called to be apostles, sent out ones. But specifically in Paul's life, he had a very specific calling to apostleship. And we see that throughout Scripture, but his apostleship was to the Gentiles. And it's actually different from the 12 apostles, um, which we could discuss later, but his specific apostleship was with the purpose of reaching the Gentile church. And we see that in Acts chapter 22, verse 19 through 21. If you want to turn with me, you can. Acts twenty two nineteen. Which says, So I said, Lord, 
they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and the guard, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Verse 21, Then he, God, said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. God's commissioned Paul to be the sent out one to the Gentiles specifically. Galatians chapter 1 verse 15 says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son to me, son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. So he had this calling to the Gentiles specifically. And then in Romans chapter 11, verse 13, he lays it out clear as day by saying, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. He went out to reach those who had not known the law, those who had not heard the things of God. He had a specific calling. Now that begs the question in our lives, do we know our specific calling? Because the church in America, what we often like to do is go and sit in a chair and feel as though we're fulfilling our religious obligation by coming and sitting in a chair. The problem is, is that's not what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus has called us to be servants of the body, to take care of the needs of the church in whatever capacity he's called us to, that doesn't look like a single thing, that looks like multiple things. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14 describes it as a body, right? You have ears, toes, kidneys, hearts, all kinds of different parts to a body. But we all serve the same purpose to magnify Jesus Christ to keep the body healthy, to protect the body, to strengthen the body. We all work together for for one reason, to glorify the head, and that's Jesus. So Paul has this specific ministry to the Gentile church. The next thing I want to look at is something that's different about this epistle. It says... Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior. This is the first time we see Paul write this. You see, every other time Paul says, by the will of God, if he's commending his apostleship. But here he's saying, by the commandment of our God and Savior. Why? Why would he do this here? Well, I think it's very simple. I think he's trying to magnify his his, uh, apostleship to a young man who's struggling in ministry. I think he's trying to say to Timothy, look it, it's a commandment of God that I'm called to be an apostle, just like it's a commandment of God that you're called to be a pastor. You don't have anything to worry about. Fulfill the commandment. And you know how much fear that takes away from a young man in ministry? 
How, how much fear that takes away from a woman in ministry. I'm commit, I have God's commandment behind me. It's not me. It's not my authority. I'm not going out on my own power, my own strength. It's actually quite funny. I, I currently work um, as a director of maintenance and um, environmental services at a uh, senior living community. And um, very often I'm talking with my employees and I'm telling them, hey, look, this is what I expect from you. And I could see upon their face their they're, that they're displeased with what I'm saying because I'm expecting more out of them than what they want to give. And, and there's been one time when one of my employees, I'm new, I'm only like three and a half, four months into this thing, one of my employees has said to me, well, what gives you the right to tell us to do that? To which I had to say to that person, you're right. Me, alone, I have no authority. I have no right to tell you. I have, I have no, nothing to back me up in myself to say you have to go out and do this specific job. That's part of your job description. But I have this guy that stands behind me. He's my boss and he's in charge of the whole place. And he has told me to have you do these things. So because of that, you have to do these things. My boss is the person that runs the whole community. You know, that same authority, I shouldn't say that same authority, that same idea is portrayed in our authority in our ministry. You see, I don't have power where I work. I'm not some, you know, like giant of, of senior living communities. I don't have anything to back my name in it, so to say. But I do have someone behind me that backs everything that I do, everything that I say. And that's what Paul's saying here to Timothy. Look at my ministry is commanded by God. I, I don't have any power of myself. I have no strength. I have nothing in me that's great. I'm not some great speaker. I'm not a good-looking guy. I, I have nothing to back up why I am where I am. But God has commanded me to do this thing. Is that how we approach ministry? Because I could tell you our conversations would look a lot different if that was. Our conversations with our coworkers, with our friends, with our family. If, if we knew, no, God commanded me. I have God's backing in this thing. I'm able to go and do this because God told me that he's behind me in this. Our conversations would look so much different. And let it be that way. Because God has called us all to apostleship. We spoke about that, right? Romans chapter 1, verse 5. We've all been called to go out, to be representatives of Christ, of his word, of his love, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it ends by saying, our hope. Our hope. The word hope there, the meaning is a, a ex expectation of good. And the, the question in regard to that is, what is your hope? What is your hope? And it's funny because we could have all kinds of different hopes, right? But what is your ultimate hope? 
Because I think we lose vision in what, what our hope is, our faith, so to say. What do we have faith in? The word's synonymous. Is it in uh, our bank accounts lasting forever? Is our hope in our job not shutting down? Is our hope in our house staying in a place where we can live in it for until at least we die? I mean, what, what is our hope in? That our family will stay healthy and secure? That our children, our grandchildren will stay healthy and not die? What is our hope? Because according to 1 Timothy chapter 1, our hope is Jesus Christ. And that, that alone is our hope. That's it. Do we live that way, though? Do our actions say we truly have hope in Christ alone? Or are we trying to juggle everything else in life to, to show our hope in Christ, even though our hopes in all other things, bank accounts. And, I mean, what if the economy tanked today? What if it just dropped out? No money, no food, no home. What's our hope in? That's a hard thing for us here in America because we're rich. We're wealthy. We have, and, and it's so weird to say that in down east Maine, that we're wealthy, but we're wealthy. <laughs> You go to other places in the world and, and their hope has to be in Jesus alone because they have nothing else. They don't have food sitting in their refrigerator or, or up in their cupboards. They don't have a store down the street where they could go spend their last $80 on food or a, a place to go sleep outside of the rain. They don't have places like that. They have to hope in Jesus Christ. Here, we're, we're spoiled. <laughs> and we expect that. But do we live as though our hope is in Christ alone? Our hope. Verse 2. To Timothy. A true son in the faith. And we spoke about this, right? This is a, a young man. At this point, the way that it's... It's described a true son in the faith. Um, and when he says, let no one despise your youth later on in the book, um, it's speaking of a young man at this point. He's no longer 17 to 21. He's probably somewhere between 35 and 40. But this is a young man that has followed after his father in the faith. Do we have those people in our lives and they don't have to be older than us. But do we have those people in our lives that are fathers or mothers in the faith to us? That are, that are in our lives to show us, to guide us? Or even better yet, are we that to someone else? You know, we look at this and there's two people in this story. There's this man who had this ultimate expression of Jesus's love happened to him, right? This man was out murdering Christians and he had this huge transformation when Jesus physically appeared to him. He said, why are you persecuting me? 
we then see him going into Derby and Lystra and meeting this young man who seems to be raised correctly in the faith somehow by a mother who was a believer. He was a disciple at a very young age. Are we someone's spiritual mother or father? Because it goes in both ways. Paul needed Barnabas. He outgrew Barnabas, but he needed Barnabas. Timothy needed Paul. Are we that in someone's life? Because we're called to be. We're called to be making disciples. We're also called to be a disciple. We should be feeding each other. He's a true son in the faith. Continues by saying grace. And the first thing that a a young person, man or woman, that wants to serve God needs is grace. And this is something that I see inside of the church lacking very often. Grace. What is grace? Grace, uh, the word is charis. It means that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speed. You could, you could remember it by the old acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Grace. Unmerited favor. This is something that Jesus Christ showed us. It's something that we should be showing people through our lives. But grace is much more than just what we need for salvation. It's actually it's needed through all portions of our life. We see grace is needed for obedience to the faith. We saw that in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, right? We need grace to be obedient to Jesus Christ and what he's called us to do. We also see that grace is needed for our justification so that we can be justified We see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, which says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We need it for justification. We also need it for our sufficiency and struggle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, you could turn there or you could listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. It says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with God three times that it may depart from me. It was bugging him. It was hurting him. It was it was really something that he couldn't stop focusing on. Verse 9, And he said to me, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Grace is something that, that helps us get through the pangs of life. Maybe even the spiritual attack that we will receive if we decide to delve into ministry in any way. We also see that grace is for our righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 24. Romans 3, 21 through 24. 
says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believed, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our righteousness, our justification, all of these things come through his grace. The next word he uses there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is mercy, which is different. It stands out because this is the first time that he uses mercy in his greeting to someone or to a church. Usually it's grace and peace. This time he says grace, mercy, and peace. Why? Because he's talking to a man who's supposed to lead people to Jesus Christ. And he's saying to Timothy, look, yes, you need grace and you need peace, but you also need mercy. Why? Because you need to be showing this to people. If you're going to lead people, you need to be graceful. You need to have mercy on them. And you need to be peaceful. What is that word mercy? Well, it's a word elios. It means not getting the punishment you deserve. That's simple. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, getting God's riches that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment that you do deserve. And it's given again to Timothy so that he could show mercy to the church. And we actually see this in continuing uh, 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 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul talks about the mercy that he received. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Which says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. 13. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Verse 16. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy. For what reason? That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's saying to Timothy, look, I want you to understand You've received mercy from Jesus Christ. You haven't gotten what you've deserved, even though you were raised right. You didn't sin as much as I did. You weren't out killing people. You've received the same mercy that I have, and you need to be that example of mercy unto others. Now the question is, do we really realize the mercy that God has had on us? And do we give that same mercy to those in our lives? Do we pull back the punishment, so to say, that they deserve? Is that something that can define who we are? 
yeah, you deserve this punishment, but I'm going to give you mercy. It's funny. uh, I talk about my daughter Elizabeth a lot whenever I teach, but it's because she is an example that God has given me. But very often in my conversations with her, when I'm pulling her to the side, I say to her, do you deserve a spanking right now? And she'll be honest. She doesn't hold back. Yeah, I deserve a spanking. And I say, would you rather that daddy shows you mercy? And she, for a little while there, she was like, well, what does that mean? That's kind of scary. <laughs> and I, I had to explain to her, no, I, you deserve a spanking right now. You're right. But if I, if I decide not to give it to you, even though you deserve it, and tell you that I love you and let you go on, will you not do that again so that I don't have to spank you right now? And very often she'll say, yes, please. Show me mercy. You know, I want that same mercy provided to me that that Jesus has given to me. I want that same mercy provided to me from my brothers and my sisters. I wish we could talk about things. That same thing that I do with my daughter. You deserve punishment right now. But I'm not going to give that to you because Jesus has given me mercy. And the last thing there is peace, right? He says grace, mercy, and peace. And that word peace there, it's the word irene. It means rest or quietness, tranquility. And it's actually something that the whole world is asking for. And we've seen it in the 60s, right? The 70s, everyone's throwing up peace signs, peace, the whole hippie movement. But the reality is, is... We can't find peace in anything here on this earth if we haven't first received grace and mercy from Jesus Christ. That's the only place that we're going to find peace, tranquility. When we found ourselves completely delved into Jesus Christ, understanding that there's nothing else for us here on this earth. And it actually explains that because it says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the only place that that we could get those three things. Grace, mercy, and peace. In Romans chapter 8, this is where we'll finish. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. That same word, Irene. When we set our minds on the things of God, when we allow Jesus Christ to be the focal point of our lives, then we could have peace. Then we could have tranquility. Then when everything in our lives go crazy, our finances, our families, our things, whatever it may be, if Jesus Christ is the focal point, All of it is just white noise, fuzz, doesn't matter, because I have Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. If you guys want, you're more than welcome to hang out, fellowship for a while. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your peace and your grace, for your mercy, Father. 
I do ask that you watch over us. Give us a heart to serve you, to serve your people, Father, to to not be fearful of danger, but instead to live radical lives like Paul had, like Timothy had. Father, giving it all up for you, serving you to the highest capacity, looking forward to our time with you, living for eternity, not for now. Father, I ask that you do bless us, your kids. Watch over us. You are our true spiritual father. And Father, I do ask that we continue to live as if we were your true spiritual sons and daughters. Bless us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.